they get bought by Apple for $3 billion. And I remember the deal came down, and I didn't know for sure whether LeBron had points or, you know, equity. And the deal came down, and I was, remember it was during the playoffs, and he was in Miami, and it was before a game. And I walked over to him, and I go, did you have equity in Beats? And he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, what do you think? Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast 15 years, over 600 episodes featuring conversations with the biggest names in sports like David Stern, Pete Carroll, Chris Abbott, Jeannie Buss, Michael Vick, Andre Iguodala, Mark Cuban, Tom Rinaldi, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, Lindsey Vaughn, Eric Spolster, Aaron Rodgers, and Steve Nash on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. Subscribe, rate, and review the Sports Business Radio podcast on iTunes, and everyone who posts a review on iTunes will be eligible to be selected to join us in our studio audience at one of our Sports Business Radio roadshows presented by Boingo. And we're also on Spotify now, so you can find us there. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years, and on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. Let's welcome Brian Windhorse to the Blinder guest line on Sports Business Radio. Blinder is the way high-performance teams connect their talent with the media and fans. It lets communications managers provide unprecedented access to their athletes, entertainers, and executives while respecting everyone's privacy and time. Blinder makes phone calls magic. Request a demo today at blinderhq.com backslash sbradio. My guest is Brian Windhorst. He covers the NBA for ESPN. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He's author of the new book, LeBron Inc., which is available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. I've known Brian for about 20 years. You can follow him on Twitter at Windhorst ESPN. Brian, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm well. Thank you very much. So I'm excited to uh, dig into your new book. I know you've worked on this for a long time. You have known LeBron James for many, many years. Uh, but before we get into your book, I've got to ask you about the whole Magic Johnson abruptly resigning as president of basketball operations with the Lakers this week. Did you see that coming in any way, shape, or form? In the moment, absolutely not. You know, nobody saw it coming. Um, I think that they had a bit of a jam that they were in because I think they needed to retrofit their front office, but I didn't know how Jeannie Buss was going to do it because um, I'm not saying she had to replace Magic, but they needed another person. They needed someone else in there who had experience because the next six to ten weeks, or I guess eight to ten weeks, are vitally, vitally important for the front office. There's a lot of very important things to do, and quite frankly, I just didn't think that Magic and Rob Palenka were equipped to do it. And so I wondered if there was a way for her to add somebody there that she, where they could save face. And I was wondering, like, could she transition Magic to another position? These were things that I was wondering and talking to people about in the league. I don't know what Jeannie was thinking, but she should have been thinking this. And so while it was a shocking thing in the moment, Brian, I think Magic gave a, a gift to the Lakers franchise. I, I, you know, I think he, he realized that he was uncomfortable doing what he was doing I wonder if he knew how difficult this was going to be coming up and, and questioned. I know he's like a super-duper confident guy, 
but I wonder if he questioned whether he wanted to go through with this difficult period, and he gave her really a gift. It was hard to see that in the moment because it was so shocking, um, but this is something that, that you know they needed to do, and I don't know. One of the things about hiring a legend is what, ha- what happens when you have to let a legend go? Uh, or if you have to let a legend go. And the answer is you really can't do it. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why it's hard to do that. And so now I think the Lakers have a wonderful opportunity to create a new front office that can handle the complexities uh, that they have in front of them right now. I, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, as you know, I was with Jeannie last week, ironically, sitting down with her in Los Angeles. And one of my takeaways from that conversation was – that she said that there were some people that she worked with that she thought they were one thing, but they were kind of something else. And, you know, my takeaway was that I don't know that the communication with Magic and with Rob was quite what she hoped it would be, and she felt like she needed to find them and have face-to-face conversations with them. And I don't know. I I got the sense that they were a little bit absentee and that they weren't really – Covering their lane. This is, you know, I've read tweets in the last week or so about people saying, what kind of an owner is Jeannie Buss? And my response to that is she has been tasked with handling the business side and the business side is thriving and it's doing great. But she has entrusted the wrong people with covering their lane, which is the basketball side, whether it was her brother or now magic. And I think this is a chance for her to take a mulligan and, and get this right. Yeah, so I have no idea how it works within the, the company. I'm not there every day, so I, I can't say. But I would just say that when they were facing this critical, critical time, which, you know, was very plain to see, you didn't have to have inside access to understand how important these coming weeks were going to be with the coaching decision, with the, with the draft pick decision, whether, you know, trade options, possibly getting back involved with Anthony Davis, and, of course, free agency. You need an absolute A-plus rock star to do this. Um, that they were spending time having to worry about whether they trusted each other and whether uh, people were going behind other people's back. And frankly, uh, Brian, um, if you were around the team at all over the last two months, there was an incredible maneuvering to, you know, everyone to cover their own backside to avoid blame. And if that is what you're spending time doing, um, instead of preparing for this incredibly important period, it's just, it's, it's not functioning properly. And I agree with you. I think um, Jeannie's reputation within Lakers, I'm sorry, within the ownership level in the NBA, I mean, I talk to owners. They, they have incredible respect for her. They think she does a wonderful job. She sits on some very important committees. Um, Adam Silver obviously trusts her impeccably. But her basketball operations department, which let's just be honest, that's extraordinarily important. Right. Um, has just not functioned well. And, and, and when I, I said this on TV yesterday, and I know that it upset the Lakers and Jeannie very much, but I, I don't know what else to say, Brian. The six years or seven, whatever it is, six-plus years that she's been the owner have been the six worst years in Laker history. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't mean to make that insulting, but that's just accurately true. They've been the worst team in the NBA for six years. It, she's not getting it done on that side, and that's just the way that it is. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I have said is that the Lakers operate too much like a family business. Um, she has one of her best friends in Linda Rambis as her business partner. They do a great job. She has um, 
you know, uh, one of her father's most trusted uh, friends uh, in, in Magic running uh, the team until this week. Uh, she hired Toby Bryant's agent to be the GM and by her own admission on your podcast, talking about how she, how Phil Jackson saw Luke Walton as a son. And we you know she was with Phil for 15 years, so it was basically like her son. This is a wonderful story. It's very happy and heartwarming. I'm sure they've had wonderful times together. It is not how you run a billion-dollar company in 2019. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be mean about it. But I have the results, and I have the way it's functioning, and I have no choice but to say that. No, I agree with you. Look, I think her biggest mistake is that she has too many emotional ties to people she does business with. And when you have emotional ties to people, it makes it a lot harder to cut ties. And like you said earlier, if Magic didn't resign this week, she wasn't going to move him or let him go and say, I need to bring someone in who's more dedicated to this job and who has a better grasp on today's modern NBA than you do. So that's why I think hopefully in the future, like if she brings in Phil or she brings in Jerry West or someone like that, you know that she hasn't learned the lesson. But if she goes out and gets someone who has a grasp on today's modern NBA, then you can say, okay, finally, Jeannie's in control of basketball operations and she got this higher right. Right. Well, I mean, I also think that, um, you know, if, if you if you, if you look, she she said many times, Brian, about how she, she tries to do what her father would do. That you know, she you know, I try to think about what my father would do. Well, I just want to point out one thing. In, in two thousand and four, I believe it was, her father saw a problem with Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal, and he'd won three championships with those two. And Shaquille O'Neal was one of the he, I mean, he probably made him made the franchise worth a billion dollars or more. Um, his debt to Shaquille was was, incre- was incredible. I mean, he recruited him in. You know, they did great business together, they had a great relationship. And he just said, uh, when push came to shove, he had to cut him loose. He had to choose Kobe over Shaq. It was a cruel decision. He chose the younger, more healthier, in his mind, more stable player, and he did it. And it was a hard decision, but that's what businessmen do. Um, not even business, but business, you know, that's what, that's what you have to do in the business of basketball. And <clears throat> I wonder if Dr. Buss was still with us, if he had made some harder decisions and not worried about personal relationship. Because her father, push came to shove, he did make business decisions. Yeah, and I can tell you this. Jeannie is ultra aware. I mean, this is the stat she gave me. 30 of the 32 years that her father was alive to run the Lakers, they made the playoffs. She hasn't made the playoffs in six years since. She knows it. It's weighed heavy on her. And, you know, if she doesn't get it right this time, then I think people can move in on what the heck's going on. But I do think that she's going to make a a good decision this time around. Uh, Before we get into LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Dirk Nowitzki, two of the greats in the NBA, two really, like, good guys, too, involved in the community, moved on this week. Any final thoughts on, on their careers? Um. What a wonderful way that both of them went out. Um, they're <clears throat> sort of a part of a dying breed uh, of stars who mostly stay with one team their whole career. Now, Wade did have a year-and-a-half hiatus, which just proves how hard it is to stay with the team. Um, <clears throat> but um, this is something that is from another era, especially when you talk about the ultimate star players. So um, – the way it went out, I mean, you know, you saw people reacting from other sports, other professional, especially NFL players, really talking about how jealous they were about how they were able to go out on their own terms. Um, you know, both of their teams were terrible. <laughs> um, you know, the Heat 
barely missed the playoffs, but under 500. The the, uh, the Mavericks were tanking a little bit, but um, you know they're, they're looking more to the future. But they were able to have wonderful, happy seasons, and that's one of the things about uh, I think that is is a goal for the NBA. You don't just have to have to win the championship to have a wonderful year, and in this time where there's a lot of players talking about how unhappy they are. Um, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of, uh, you know, you see coaches you know, taking leaves of absences. You hear players and Adam Silver talking about unhappiness. Um, Dwayne Wade won the season, the happiest season you could ever imagine. He he might have enjoyed this season's process more than he enjoyed his championship seasons. At the end of those championship seasons, he certainly enjoyed it. But I can tell you, being there for a couple of those heat titles, there was a lot more stress and a lot more angst. Um, so I think it was just a wonderful time and place, and I was really moved by taking it all in. Yeah, no, I think it's great. And the other thing that struck me is you have such strong ownership in Mark Cuban and then the Arisons, and the way they sent those two out and the class in which they did it. There's some great organizations out there, but those two uh, were treated royally on their way out the door. Yeah, and I'll say something about those two organizations. Look at the wonderful stability there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, Pat Riley, Eric Spolster were there for Wade's entire career. Uh, Andy Ellisberg, there for his entire career. Uh, in in, in uh, Dallas, not just Mark Cuban, but Donnie Nelson and Rick Carlisle for a majority of his career, a huge chunk of his career. Um, stability is very important in organizations. You find the right people, you empower them, and you support them. It's amazing to me all the you know people try to steal front office people they try to steal coaches they try to steal players very rarely do we see teams value stability and right there are two class franchises that are based on stability from top down totally agree all right let's dig into your book a little background for our audience like I said at the top I've known you for a long time you've covered LeBron longer than anyone. Uh, I used to consult for Nike long ago for about 11 years, so I saw a lot of LeBron early in his career, was around him personally, know a lot of the same people you do at Nike and Adidas and, and some of those other places. But uh, what led you to want to write this book? Because you've already written books on LeBron. What about this one? What was kind of the, the impetus behind this book? Well, I just... I mean, I wanted to do something different, and I've, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to be a guest of yours in the past because I have a great interest in sports business. And, you know, there's been a lot done on LeBron, obviously, he's one of the most famous athletes uh, in history. Uh, and there's been a couple of good pieces of journalism on his business. I mean, I think at one point, Fortune did a story, um, uh, Fast Company did a profile, a good profile at one point, Advertising Age has done a few things. Um, Maverick Carter has had a couple of, of uh, uh, pieces he did, he did with uh, Harvard reviews of some of his business decisions. But never before has there been anything comprehensive uh, looking backward and looking forward. And so part of it was I just want to do something different. And uh, also I'm interested in it. I'm interested in the way the Nike deal came together. I'm interested in the way that the Adidas deal came together. I'm interested in the way he pivoted. Uh, basically from being an endorsing guy, a guy who took a check, to being an equity guy, to being somebody who's invested in the media business. Um, and uh, so th- there's not a lot of basketball in this book, very little actually, but there's a lot of stories and ex- explanation of stuff that um, if you know, if you knew a lot of this stuff as a LeBron fan, I'd like to meet you because you knew more than me. 
Yeah, it's really interesting to look at LeBron, and I know your book uh, outlines a lot of this, but you know, a lot of people think MJ kind of laid out the original blueprint for an athlete, right? His deal with Nike, he and David Falk really did some different things, his agent. But then LeBron comes along, and obviously LeBron was like heralded from an earlier age than MJ, and uh, like you said, he starts taking equity deals. And the other thing that I think is a huge difference between LeBron and, and MJ is LeBron is big in the age of social media and content. Like MJ didn't have that when he was a spokesperson and when he was coming up. So LeBron and his team have totally used that to their advantage to, like you said, build content companies and, you know, do media partnerships and, and, Things of that nature. But when you look at like the MJ versus LeBron blueprint, and I know people talk about them as the greatest of all time, but as business people, they've both done it different ways. How do you compare those blueprints? Yeah, well, you get to a good point with social media. So let's just take the example of um, the, the, the sort of fast food angle. So I'm pretty sure Jordan did uh, McDonald's commercials. Um, but he certainly did ballpark Franks commercials and stuff like that. Um, so LeBron had a deal in, you know, around the mid to late 2000s into the early 2010s with uh, McDonald's. It was a pretty good deal. It was for, I think, 3 or $4 million a year. Didn't have to work very hard for it. And I think, you know, you know he worked for them a couple of days a year. They would film commercials. Um, that They would go out. They would use them in advertising campaigns and things like that really a quality deal for the time invested. And obviously it's a huge company. It's a huge brand that you want to be involved in. And um, they were probably going to have that deal for a very long time. And um, when it came up recently, uh, he elected to forego um, resigning. You know, we would have taken a two or three year deal that was worth, again, three or $4 million a year would have been worth more than $10 million to go with Blaze Pizza, which you've never seen a television commercial for. And you've never seen an ad with LeBron in it. And you say, well, why would he do that? Why would he leave this cush, cush, you know, paycheck where he used, he just works a couple of days a year and gets this money? Um, why would he do that? And the answer is because he, he, you know, it's a very modern deal. So not only did he get equity in Blaze's in, in, in the Blaze Franchise Corporation that someday is probably going to go public and he will be able to monetize that in a massive way, he got preferred um, uh, franchise. Uh, he was able to own the franchises in South Florida and, and the Chicago area, so he's able to open you know several dozen of those restaurants. That's a thing of value. You you know you have to you know he may be able to open a Blaze franchise, but you may not get those coveted markets. And he's done most of the promotion for Blaze on social media. You know it hasn't been and and you know you probably know about Blaze and I know about Blaze and millions of people know about Blaze because of LeBron. And he's he's gotten you know they've gotten that. Uh, awareness without having to buy a single television ad and they've traded this equity deal so yeah the mcdonald's deal was wonderful when the checks arrived in the mail but if blaze goes international and goes public um and maybe someday lebron gets an offer for those franchises he could turn this maybe into something a you know certainly certainly eight figures maybe even approaching nine figures depending on how it goes and so that's the type of deal that he makes in a very modern way where he completely leverages his popularity on social media where he's got massive follower amounts and the desire for big companies just to be in business with him this is one of the things that he learned very early is that he could he could get certain um 
you know, preferred deals just because companies wanted to have them in the portfolio. And Brian, I think one of the most amazing deals, and it's a complex deal, and I won't get too far into it, was the deal that he made back in 2010 with Fenway Sports. Fenway Sports is the parent company of the Boston Red Sox, Liverpool FC, Nesson, their regional sports network up there. They have the uh, Roush Fenway uh, uh, Racing, which is a NASCAR team. Uh, they may have a couple of other properties. They're the parent company. They do do some marketing, but it's for brands. They like do marketing for Dunkin' Donuts and, and progressive insurance and things like this. They were not a company that was in business with athletes. They, they you know, were a holding company for teams. And they got an opportunity to get in business with LeBron, and they just couldn't help themselves. The deal, you know, I've talked to them. I've talked to, to the LeBron folks about it. I still don't understand why the deal made sense, other than Fenway just loved the idea of having LeBron James as a partner. And the deal that they struck was basically LeBron would allow them to, to, to sell his marketing rights internationally, like allow him to make deals for him, not even like, give them the endorsement dollars. Basically, he just gave them the right to pitch him in deals. That's all. You know, they basically, he basically hired them as an agency. I mean, obviously, they were going to take a cut of those deals, but just for the right to pitch him, they allowed him to become a 2% shareholder of Liverpool FC. Now, like I said, this is a complex deal. This is not something that Michael Jordan ever would have done, which was trading his marketing rights. I mean, not even his rights, just trading just trading his marketing shopping rights for equity in an English soccer team. That is a very unusually constructed deal. And that team, when they bought it, and we could go on and on, and, and you know, I guess listeners to your podcast care about this, Fenway had done such a wonderful job. They bought Liverpool out of bankruptcy. Uh, Tom Hicks, who uh, used to own the, um, the Texas Rangers, lost all of his money. The bank took possession of the team in England. Fedway came in and made a, an offer that they got the team basically for a discount because the creditors wanted their money. They made a great job outbidding a group from Asia to get the team. LeBron gets in there and gets a 2% stake. That team, right, and I think, that, I think they were over 100 million pounds in the black last year. They have a chance to win the, um, the English Premier League this year. They're still alive in the Champions League where they finished runner-up last year. Uh, if they sold today, they would probably sell for an excess of two billion pounds, which would make LeBron's share in in excess of fifty million dollars. And again, because of the ingeniousness of this odd constructed deal, because at the heart of it, Fenway just wanted to be able to have LeBron James, and they've done some some deals for him. They did a a luxury watch deal. They did a deal with Dunkin' Donuts in China where they put cutouts of LeBron inside Dunkin' Donuts stores. They did a small deal with him with Progressive Insurance, which was mostly a digital package. They've done some other things, but basically LeBron took advantage of the desire to just be with him. And that's one of the most remarkable deals that you'll ever see. And it may not be the biggest deal he ever makes. Obviously, he's made hundreds of millions from Nike, but these are the types of things that they have done that I think are just really impressive. You're listening to Sports Business Radio with our guest, Brian Winhorst of ESPN. We'll be right back after this. The Sports Business Radio podcast is brought to you by Blinder. Blinder is what savvy PR managers use in the bedroom or in their car, sometimes on the kitchen table, and especially in the office. Blinder is phone call magic. It lets you connect your media and fans directly to your athletes, coaches, and executives 
personal phones without sharing anyone's private information. And you can record or join any call with the click of a button. Remotely control your team's phone interviews, set start and finish times, monitor online or with the Blinder mobile app, and listen to a recording of the call at any time for your complete peace of mind. With Blinder, you're finally in control. The system works globally from any phone line. Scheduling a call takes seconds. Customizable push-button notifications ensure a connection, and no one needs to download anything to make or receive a call. Learn how to start your free trial by visiting blinderhq.com backslash sbradio. Now we're talking. Now back to Sports Business Radio with our guest, Brian Winhorst. Well, I want to follow up on that because the other equity deal that he did that made a lot of news, I think you may have been the one that uncovered it, is the whole Beats by Dre, right? So he does a deal with them. They sell to Apple. And because he did an equity deal versus taking cash and just saying, hey, I'm an endorser, pay me flat fee to do this, he made a lot more money in that scenario than he would have if he just let them use his face on a, a commercial. Right. It goes back to when he was coming out, when he when he declared pro at 18, um, you know, he made the big Nike deal and he was looking to do a beverage deal. And Coke was bidding. He ended up going with Coke for six years and like $15 million. Um, Gatorade was in there, um, you know, Pepsi, Pepsi Gatorade. Um, there was a small little company based in Long Island called Vitamin Water that was looking for a way to boost its profile. And Vitamin Water didn't didn't have a... Um, didn't have a marketing budget of hundreds of, you know, or you know, even tens of millions of dollars. They basically were only able to do marketing by having giving out equity. And LeBron passed on that deal. And by the way, it was probably smart because, you know, for all I know, he passed on 50 other companies that offered equity that became nothing. But, you know, 50 Cent, for example, took their deal. David Wright took their deal. I think Tracy McGrady also took their deal. And then when Vitamin Water was, when you know, their parent company was sold, it was, you know, a billion-dollar deal, and those guys all cashed out. Uh, so I think, you know, when when you see that, you're like, man, we could have gotten them. And you look for deals like that. So um, Beats by Dre, again, they had big backing in terms of name recognition, Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, but they didn't have $20 million to spend on marketing. Forget about paying LeBron. They didn't have money to, to, to buy television ads. So between Jimmy Iovine, Maverick Carter, and LeBron, they came up with this idea where they would give them away. LeBron would sort of give them away. And if Beats had just sent, um, you know, these, you know, out of the blue, or even if they had a, a marketing guy stand there handing them to the Olympic team, those guys wouldn't have worn it. I mean, we're talking about a headphone that no one had ever seen before, these big giant discs that you would have seen <clears throat> only if you, like, worked at a radio station or you worked as a producer. And, and so, but because LeBron gave them out, because LeBron wore them, like most of his Olympic team, the 2008 Olympic team, the Redeem team, one of the most high-profile teams, uh, you know, basketball teams, really since the Dream Team, the Redeem team is probably the most second most high-profile team in history. And here's Joe Johnson, here's Chris Paul, here's all these guys wearing those headphones. Beats didn't pay any of those guys. They co-opted the entire team out of a genius marketing strategy. And again, it doesn't mean that LeBron making a beautifully constructed and shot and edited Nike commercial to sell, you know, $200 pairs of shoes isn't effective. It obviously is. But this was a way that he did it. And, you know, other companies that he started uh, have failed. But this was the company that he got. And, 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 you know, they gave him a couple of points on the company. He did the deal. 
and, uh, and and still endorse them, and you know, and everything like that. He still endorses them to this day. He has a deal with them, but then they get bought by Apple for three billion dollars. And I remember the deal came down, and I didn't know for sure whether LeBron had points or you know equity. And the deal came down, and I was remember it was during the playoffs, and he was in Miami, and it was before a game, and uh, uh, a playoff game in Indiana. And I walked over to him, and I go. Did you have equity in Beats? Because it, you know, I you know this this wasn't something I was really writing about at the time. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, "What do you think?" <laughs> and I go, "I think you had equity in Beats." And he goes, "It's been," he said, "It's been a good week." So um, and that was by the way, that was an all cash deal. <laughs> they just they just got their cash, and so um, uh, I, I you know I, I you know it was something between fifty and a hundred million. It depended on various factors and tax and everything. But at the end of the day. Had he done like a, a headphone deal with Sony where he did like a three-year contract to sell Sony's headphones, he'd have gotten, I don't know, his market rate at that time was, you know, three, four million bucks a year. Yeah, he'd, it would have been a great deal. He'd made $10 million. This way, not only did he get to participate in it, and by the way, he's still a, a, a part of the, that company. Um, he made, you know, this huge amount. And so him searching for deals like that and the backstory of those deals. And by the way, the book goes into the whole way that Jimmy Iovine even created this friendship with LeBron, which was pretty sly on Jimmy Iovine's part, and, and sort of goes into that whole backstory as well. Let's go back to, since we both have great ties to, to Nike and to some of the sneaker companies, into the Nike deal. Because, again, you know, here's LeBron being heavily recruited, and I had a front row seat to this because, I again, I was consulting to Nike. So uh, Adidas, Reebok, Nike, others are going – you know, full steam ahead on LeBron. And the thing is, Nike didn't come with the biggest offer. And they still got LeBron. And, you know, we're both friends with uh, Lynn Merritt at Nike. And I really credit Lynn with getting that deal done. And I know he kind of put his neck on the chopping block with Phil Knight and was like, trust me on this, write the check. This guy is going to be really good for us. But what did you learn for your book on kind of how that whole relationship started? Because now, correct me if I'm wrong, LeBron has a lifetime deal with Nike. Yeah, so writing about this is challenging because obviously there were a couple of companies that were losers in the deal, number one. Right. Um, number two, when it comes to shoe contracts, the numbers that get thrown out are very confusing. You know, you know Nike could sign me to a contract and it could be for $600 million dollars. I may have to sell a billion pairs, but in theory, if I sold a billion pairs, I would get six hundred million. It's all about the guarantees, and then about the you know the, re, the, the realistic um, uh, bonuses and stuff like that. So, comparing deals was very difficult, um, and and memories, you know, people defend their own stuff, and then memories have changed and everything. So it's difficult to really boil down and get to it. But um, basically. Uh, LeBron wanted wanted to go to Nike. That's what he wanted to be with. I think he would have signed with Adidas. Um, he wore Adidas all the way throughout high school, and I think he was okay with joining that company. At the time, Adidas had done very well with Tracy McGrady, and um, they were making good product. Um, but Adidas just didn't bring the money at the end of the day. They were sort of out. You know, they were They were in first on LeBron when he was 16 years old, and they were out first. Um, and so it, it disappointed Sonny Vaccaro so much that he essentially quit the company. Um, so the, the really the, the challenge was, how do you get the most money out of Nike? Because Nike never pays top dollar. They don't have to. And they launched this plan. Aaron Goodwin, his agent, launched this plan. 
and Reebok was very aggressive. Uh, it was a it was a great you know it was a great time to come to market. All three te- all three companies were in the bidding. It's one of the reasons why Zion might approach the number that LeBron got because you know there may be six or seven companies that are going to bid because the Chinese companies are going to get involved here. There were no Chinese companies bidding back then, so it's the amount of bidders made a big difference, and the fact that Reebok was way behind. They had not laid the groundwork like Nike and Adidas had. Lynn Merritt began getting to know LeBron when he was 16, 17. Uh, Sonny Vaccarol met him when he was 15 or 16. Reebok um, had a, a little bit of an in, but it was like sort of a hired gun in. They, had, uh, they, they brought in Wes Wesley, the famous Wes Wesley, as a consultant for this deal. And, you know, Reebok just tried to shock and awe him with, uh, with an incredible offer, a $100 million-plus offer. They offered him use of their jet. They offered him use of Paul Fireman, their CEO's yacht, um, you know, all this stuff. And then, of course, the big thing, they offered him uh, a cashier's check. Now, the funny thing about this cashier's check, Brian, is the, is the differing memories on this thing. Hmm. Um, LeBron says he remembers Paul Fireman writing the check. <laughs> Other people there say that the, it was already a, a, a made bank check that was already um, printed out, which I, which I think is probably more likely. Some people say the check was for, including LeBron, say the check was for $10 million. Some people say the check was for $12 million. <laughs> But either way... I went with 10 million, and um, it was a huge it was a huge move by them. And at the time, you know, LeBron was still living in Section 8 housing. I mean, he knew he was going to be wealthy, but he didn't have the money yet. And um, Steve Stout, the man who really consulted on the, the presentation for LeBron, and the reason one of the reasons they went with him was that Steve Stout had signed so many talented people in the past, a lot of um, uh, hip hop artists, <clears throat> and just less than a year earlier had put Jay-Z and Reebok together. Um, um, and he basically said, you know, his whole career, when he wanted to sign a young African-American, he just put the money on the table. And if he offered that money, he mostly got it done. And when they gave the check, to, and they even knew to give the check to Gloria, they handed it to her first before LeBron. They wanted her to see the number. Um, and that was, strat- that was strategized too. It was a heck of a move. They also said it was an exploding offer that he left. He left the room. They would wouldn't give him the the money, and he was ballsy enough, smart enough, with having enough guts um, to walk out of that room. Now, as you can imagine, Brian, after they get this offer, which had blown them away, um, now now in retrospect, they all say, "Well, we knew they were going to come strong, but come on, this offer blew them away." Of course, LeBron's reaching out to Nike, reaching out to Lynn Merritt, and saying are you guys going to come with this offer? And the offer made Nike gag. They had no idea that it was going to be that high. And in one of the details that I thought was fascinating from the reporting was that, you know, when they went to Reebok, they presented the offer to LeBron and Gloria in the room. They presented the check to him that, you know, that negotiation happened in the room. Um, when LeBron came to Nike, Nike made a beautiful presentation to him. Um, that people at Nike have told me was the greatest presentation they'd ever made. In fact, um, they had just opened the Mia Hamm building on campus, which was the most ambitious building Nike had ever built. And the most impressive part of the building was the Phil Knight's office suite over there. And Phil hadn't quite moved into it yet. He was in the process of moving into it, but it was such an impressive area of the building that that's where they did the uh, presentation. They wanted to blow them away even from where they were in the building and all these mock-ups and they, you know, songs and things, um, and scenes and everything like that. And, um, 
when it came time to negotiate, they thought that LeBron would exit and go have a meal, go spend time with Lynn Merritt. Nike wasn't prepared for LeBron and Gloria to come into the room because at Adidas they had. And so Nike didn't have a $10 million check. Nike had like a negotiating position like, all right, we'll give you $5 million up front and then we'll pay you more on this date and then at the long-form contract we'll give you this and we'll call this the signing bonus. It was not a flashy presentation when it came to actually presenting the, the money and the offer was much lower than Reebok's. And so LeBron was expecting to be blown away like Reebok had and it was underwhelming. And so Nike had lost them, Brian. They, they were not going to get them. Um, Reebok came to Akron, Ohio with their executives to close the deal. And I don't want to say at the last minute because it developed, but, but Howard White, um, was he played a big role in this um, as well. Um, and, uh, and one of my favorite parts of the story was when uh, LeBron indicated he may reconsider the Nike offer and, and get, get them back into the game, Phil Knight was at Mark McCormick's funeral. Mark McCormick, famously one of the great all-time agents, founded IMG. Uh, he had just passed away, and Phil Knight was in... Um, was in New York at this funeral. And he was oh, he was on his way in his car over to Teterboro to get on his jet, and he was flying to Palm Springs where he has a home. And uh, this was spring of 2003. Um, I don't know if Phil didn't have a phone in his plane. I remember there being phones in airplanes in the 90s, but or I don't know if this is just the way they tell the story, but the implication was that they couldn't reach Phil for six hours while he flew to California. And so they had to negotiate the deal without having final sign-off because they did raise their offer. Um, Reebok was, 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 Reebok's offer was over $100 million. You know, Depending on how it was structured, you could come up with different numbers. Nike's offer was seven years, $77 million guaranteed, and they did agree to give them the $10 million signing bonus, although they didn't give it to them in one check. But ultimately, it was seven years for $87 million, um, and that's what he, it's what, that's what he accepted. And, uh, the, and I see even spelled out in more detail, but um, I do think, Brian, and you probably agree, he squeezed every last drop that he could get out of Nike, which probably was the ultimate goal anyway, and I think they, they achieved that. No, I agree. And those are great stories that you tell. And, you know, something else that happened that Nike did that was pretty savvy, especially looking back on it, is Lynn Merritt hired Maverick Carter as Nike intern. So, you know, look at Maverick now. Look what he's doing. Look at the relationship between Maverick and Lynn Merritt. But I saw Maverick when he didn't know anyone or anything and was just close with LeBron and you know, Lynn and the Nike people really showed him the ropes on a lot of different things. But I thought that was pretty savvy at the time. And I was on airplanes with Lynn and, and Maverick when I was doing stuff with Nike. So I saw that whole dynamic and that relationship up close. And well, maybe you can speak to this. Maybe you can speak to this. I mean, you know, part of the deal for giving LeBron the contract was that Maverick was going to get hired at Nike. But, yes, they gave him an internship beforehand, which was really smart by Lynn. Um, you know, Sonny had gotten in and gotten tight with LeBron. One of the ways that, that Lynn was able to get in with LeBron was giving Maverick an internship. But that could have been a no-show job, right, Brian? Like, um, you know, uh, you know, Nike could have just hired Maverick, and Maverick could have just gone through the motions and taken the money. Um, he was being paid a very healthy salary. But that's not how Maverick rolled. Maverick did not treat it as, oh, this is my, uh, my little hanger-on check. He genuinely wanted to get in there and learn the business at Nike, from what I understand. No, I agree. And I think... 
like I said, to his credit and to Lynn's credit, Lynn really took Maverick under his wing and LeBron, but really Maverick because he's like, hey, you're going to be the the guy leading LeBron's business. Let me show you the ropes. And, and you know, for people who don't know Lynn Merritt, he truly is one of the best at forming relationships, but then he's very, very savvy. And, you know, I think he was kind of the Yoda for, you know, if if you want to get Star Warsy here, um, you know, Maverick was the young Jedi and, and Lynn was Yoda and, and showed him the ropes. And I think they've grown a lot and obviously they've surrounded themselves with other people. And here's the other thing about the Nike deal that I want to get your thoughts on. From everyone I've spoken to at Nike, and I just talked to some people there uh, a few weeks ago, LeBron has not returned the ROI investment. Like, So if you want to go dollar for dollar on here's what we pay LeBron, here's what he has sold in product, it doesn't add up for Nike. But what they have done is they've gotten tons of branding and exposure on one of the more iconic athletes of the last you know, 20, 25 years. So... Uh, unlike MJ, who still outsells LeBron to this day, and MJ hasn't played in many, many years, the LeBron deal, I see why it made sense, and I see why they had to do it, but if I'm ranking like all-time endorsers, dollar-for-dollar return on investment, I'm going MJ, I'm going Tiger, and I'm going Allen Iverson, and LeBron's not on that list. It's a good point. Um, And I think, um, you know, if you look at Nike's annual reports, they have a, a category in there called demand creation. Um, in other words, this is this is where they bury all of their marketing and endorsement dollars into this category. And the concept there is, you know, you this is the money that you that we spend to get people to want to buy our products. And you know, it varies per year, but roughly it's like ten or eleven percent, I think, maybe maybe nine percent some years, maybe twelve percent. So it's a huge number now. My God, Nike's a what are they, maybe a 15 or $20 billion company? I'm off the top of my head, I can't remember. So it's hundreds of millions of dollars a year. But if you think about it that way, if you are somebody who Nike pays $100 million, um, you know, if, if that's what they want 10% of their uh, uh, spending to be, then you need, you need to have a billion-dollar product or a $1.1 billion product. And, you know, LeBron has made Nike lots of money. I, I don't know if he meets that criteria for dem- their demand creation target. Um, uh, but you can't quantify his, his value in creating, you know, demand, you know, brand demand. Um, I think one of the things that affected LeBron is that um, basketball shoes are not that popular right now, and they haven't been for the last four or five years. Um, they're just out of fashion. It's not his fault. It's the nature of fashion. They may come back into demand. It's one of the things that Jordan benefited from basketball shoes for people not actually playing basketball became very popular in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, people would wear, you know, the Jordans as um, – as you know, formal wear at times. I mean, that was unheard of before. People aren't doing that right now. So, um, you know, he's you know, it's not quite the same. But um, so, so like when, when you know, I'm sure you saw reports. I'm not talking about you, Brian, because you know this. But I'm sure when LeBron signed his lifetime contract, people saw that it was a billion dollars. Well, I'm sure it can be a billion dollars, but it would require him to have his shoes be very, very popular for many years after he's gone. That said. The checks from Beaverton will roll in for the rest of his life, and, and it will, he will he will make hundreds of millions. And ultimately, I think it was a good deal, even if it wasn't the most fiscally intelligent deal. I don't think Nike has second second thoughts. 
No, I totally agree with you. I think they look back and say it's one of the best deals we ever did. And again, we were on a transcendent generational athlete. And if we hadn't been on him, then I think they would have regretted it. The other thing about LeBron that's really interesting, Brian, and, and I'm sure you've discovered this too, is I get the sense that one of the reasons he does equity deals more now than just the cash deal is he really does resent those who make more money than him because he feels like I'm the cash cow. I'm the reason you're making this money. So I look at NBA owners, whether it's Dan Gilbert or, you know, obviously the Heat or the Bus family, and he feels like I'm bringing so much money to your product and I'm getting only a fraction of what I deserve because I'm, you know, restrained to, or restricted to the, you know, the salary cap and, and things of that nature. So I think one of the reasons he does equity deals is because he feels like on the open market, I can get more value and, and really what I'm worth versus I do with my playing contract. Would you agree with that? Imagine if you wrote a book and profited off of it, of his story, and, and he has his own media company. Imagine how he feels about you in that case, because <laughs> it does annoy him. You know, it does annoy him that... uh that I would do a project like this um, because for that exact reason, because uh, yeah, he wants to, he wants to capture value. Um, really, even like if you look at the decision, which, you know, obviously was a very low point in his career, the concept that they were doing followed what's the path you just described. Why give away something of value, his announcement to Twitter, to Facebook, to ESPN, um, you know, made a deal with him, basically gave him something of value um, to a press release, to a press conference, when he could capture that and uh, keep it for himself. Now, in that case, he took it and gave it to charity. But it was really just about capturing value, lost value, that he was seeing, seeing lost value going all around him. And also, I think, again, he, he saw that he could get equity points in a company just because they want to be in business with them. For the same reason, like... You know, some people love the idea of saying that LeBron flew on my private jet. So he's, you know, LeBron's used many jets that he hasn't paid for in his career uh, because people who are billionaires who have G6s sitting around not in use would say, oh, LeBron, you need to go there. Take my jet so that they can tell people, yeah, LeBron takes my jet. Why not take advantage of that? Why not take advantage of those situations? And people want to be in business. with him. And by the way, he has said no to many offers of equity. That's one thing that I think uh, should be pointed out is that you know, he and Maverick have said no probably 10 times as, time, as often as they've said yes because while they understand that getting equity is important, they also think long-term about their brand and they don't want to cheapen it. So I think they've generally done a pretty good job of that. I know you need to go soon, so I want to make sure we talk about Clutch. Brian, I've spoken with three very prominent NBA people in the last week, and none of them understand how LeBron is able to operate within the clutch parameters. And I know he says, oh, this is Rich Paul, and I don't have a stake in this, and this isn't my agency. But there's no other player in the league who is able to be part of an agency and openly recruit other players like LeBron is. What do you think of that dynamic? Part of it is like, hey, that's really smart. Uh, he's getting away with it. And the other part is, how in the world does the NBA allow that to happen? Well, again, because he can, because he can. Uh, I always thought I always thought it was amazing. You know, Nike runs these summer camps um, uh, for athletes, and uh, you know, back early on, you know, Maverick Carter, you know, wasn't a media mogul. He was a 
and marketing agent. That was his first really job outside Nike with a marketing agent. And I'd go to these Nike camps, and there would be on the wall these signs that says, no agents allowed. And Magic would be sitting underneath the sign, meeting all these high school kids, hanging out <laughs> with all these high school kids, like flagrantly, right. you know, LeBron's camp, right? Like literally, just flagrantly. I mean, look, the whole NCAA is a hypocrisy. So doing a hypocrisy on hypocrisy, I'm not going to go tisk tisk. I'm like totally fine with it. Um, it is a unique position. Now, what people seem to not understand, this is where people look on the surface level. They seem to think that LeBron cares about making money for clutch. Like, oh, if I get Draymond Green uh, um, a max extension, then I then I can get my little my hands on that four percent, and that will that will line my pockets. This is laughable. Okay, that's one of the things that the NBA has investigated Clutch to make sure LeBron doesn't have any part of it. They looked at their books, etc., whatever whitewash they did. LeBron wouldn't want Clutch to have clients to earn money off commissions. LeBron makes like three hundred fifty thousand um, dollars per game. He's not chasing, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars on a contract. Um, he would have Clutch there to, to have power have you know to, influence. to consolidate to power and influence that's where it is but here's the thing that's as old as the agent business itself agents have been consolidating power and influence for decades and they will for decades more um you know again i, I think this comes down to i've used this analogy one of the reasons why people couldn't understand lebron going into business with maverick is because they don't understand the non-traditional frankly to use He'd make, of course, the white way of looking at it. Nobody would look at it differently. You know, if if you and I went to Stanford together, and I started a an, you know a startup, and I hired you to be my CTO, even though you were 15 minutes out of school, nobody would look at it and say, "Well, that's weird. Why would he hire?" And you know, he's like, "Oh, well, you had a Stanford MBA. Of course, that's fine." Well, okay, Maverick didn't go to you know Wharton. But he had all this experience from Nike and working with LeBron. But because they're young African-Americans and didn't follow the, the established path, they were judged. So, you know, it's okay for David Falk, just to pick an agent out, I'm not just singling him out. It's okay for David Falk to have Michael Jordan and use his association with Michael Jordan to recruit guys like Alonzo Mourning and recruit guys like Patrick Ewing. And when the lockout happened in 1998 and they were rewriting the rules, um, David Falk's, like, all of his clients were always were the executive board of the Players Union, and David Falk was essentially helping negotiate the terms. That was considered fine. David Falk is considered a, um, you know, an all-time genius agent. And he's, he, by the way, talk about a guy who's made some great deals in his life. David Falk, the richest agent of all time, has made, he is a genius. But he was doing the same thing, consolidating and, and using power. He just wasn't necessarily cutting the players in on it. All that LeBron and Rich are doing is making it more player empowerment. They're not doing anything different that hasn't been done over the history of the league. And in fact, they're opening up some pathways that I think are pretty intelligent. Now, do I think their handling of the Anthony Davis trade demand was prudent? No, I do not. I do not think it was. A, I do not think they handled it well. Um, but I think to single Rich out and say that he's doing something that is sinister is completely, frankly, and I use this word with care, whitewashing the way this has gone for decades. And so I think part of the thing that they have done, and by the way, 
Rich and Maverick and LeBron have been guilty of arrogance in the past and guilty of hubris. And there have been times they've got a little bit out over their skis. But guess what? So have I in my life. Okay. Um, I think, but part of what's part of the pushback here is that they're just challenging something in a different way that's already been done for a long time. Yeah, look, I have respect for Maverick and for the team that LeBron has built and put around him. And like I said many times in this conversation, the deals they've done have set a new blueprint for other athletes. And, and I think it's been brilliant. And they've leveraged LeBron as, as well as they can. I guess the question would be, if someone else comes along and says, hey, I want to have the same kind of setup that LeBron has you know, is it Tom Brady? Is it someone who is also uh, an iconic athlete? Will the leagues go, okay, that's fine. You know, that blueprint has been laid. Or will they go, no, you can't do that. And then if LeBron has been allowed to do it, that's when you kind of raise an eyebrow and go, wait a minute here. This is this seems a little bit uh, unfair, or at least it needs to be looked into. Before I let you go on the book, is there anything while writing the book that you uncovered that you were like, wow, like I didn't know that before? That's really surprising. Um, the genius and savviness and influence of a man named Paul Walker. And Paul Walker is basically LeBron's money man, um, his deal maker, and his connector. And it was an absolute, I would argue that other than signing with Nike, LeBron hiring Paul Walker um, uh, back in about 2000, I don't remember off the top of my head, maybe 2005-ish, um, was one of the greatest decisions he ever made. And this book, and it's, it's, the, the book is about LeBron and his business, and Paul Walker has played a role. I don't want to make it sound like he's, but Paul Walker's role and in the, in the, the moves he's made to help LeBron behind the scenes, no one has ever told this story before. And um, if, 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 you learn, if you learn about how, you know, just how he does business and how LeBron has leveraged some things behind the scenes. Um, Paul Walker is, once I looked at all the deals and got information and understood how all of these things happened, like I'm, I'm explaining to you earlier that, that Fenway deal and, you know, how the hell could that come together? Who would ever think of putting something like that together? The answer is Paul Walker. And this book shows you how they did it and um, how he did it. And um, Paul Walker is, one of, the, one of the very successful, smart businessmen that very few people have heard about, but probably more people should know about. Brian Windhorst, he covers the NBA for ESPN, New York Times bestselling author. Make sure to go out and get his new book, LeBron, Inc. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Follow him on Twitter at Windhorst ESPN. Brian, we're celebrating 15 years of sports business radio Amazing. today, and I'm really honored to have you on uh, the show this week. Thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy uh, listening to it. I always like when you have me on, and um, you've helped make people smarter over the last 15 years, so here's to 15 more. Thank you very much, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. I know many of our Sports Business Radio listeners and my friends with pro sports teams fly by private or charter plane, so let me offer you this scattering report that will save you time and money. When flying into or out of New York City, there can often be long delays. That's why you want to fly into the brand new, pristine Republic Jet Center, located in Farmingdale, New York. That's just 30 minutes outside of New York City, making it the airport with the fastest time into Manhattan. Don't get caught up in delays flying into Teterboro or White Plains. Choose Republic Jet Center, and you'll experience all the reasons why you chose to fly privately. 
Republic Debt Center is a full-service, signature-select FBO that delivers an unparalleled level of customer service and safety to the private and charter jet industry. Enjoy Republic Jet Center's luxurious lobby and contemporary lounge in their new 100,000-square-foot facility. The concierge staff will gladly assist you with making any reservations you need while you're in New York City, from ground transportation arrangements, dining reservations, or even helping you with chartering a helicopter flight to Manhattan or the Hamptons. That'd be nice. Their comprehensive white glove FBO service and premier affiliations are compelling reasons why aircraft owners and operators benefit from selecting Republic Jet Center. Whenever I fly private in or out of New York City for the Sports PR Summit or the Sports Business Radio Roadshow, I now have a terrific new option, Republic Jet Center. For more information, visit RepublicJetCenter.com or call them at 631-881-9520. Follow them on Twitter at Republic Jet Center, and that's CTR for Center, or on Instagram at Republic Jet Center. Republic Jet Center, the official private airport partner of Sports Business Radio and the Sports PR Summit. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at Boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. Thanks to Hadley Heck. She's a student athlete at Portland State University, and she's our new sports business radio intern. I want to welcome ZipRecruiter to our family of sponsors. Again, really happy to have them on board. My listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash SBR. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SBR. Happy to have them on board. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps and, of course, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.